0: We are back in Proverbs looking at the principles of wisdom given to us uh, throughout this book, and as I mentioned last week, we're going to be looking today uh, again at the subject of authority, though today from the opposite uh, standpoint. Last week we talked about how Proverbs teaches us to submit to authority. Today we're going to be talking about how to steward authority that we may have over others. And there is considerably more said in the book of Proverbs from this side of that relationship, uh, which makes sense because this is a book written primarily by King Solomon uh, to his son, who would, of course, take his place as king over Israel. And so, of course, Solomon is going to instruct him on what it looks like to rule well over people. And although most of the Proverbs we're going to look at this morning are speaking of a king ruling over uh, a nation, The principles, as we'll see, apply in other relationships as well, whether we're talking about uh, managing people in the workplace, uh, raising children, whatever the case may be, any area in which you have authority over someone else, uh, these principles will be instructive to us. I want to begin uh, this morning by reading some of the last words of Solomon's father, King David. Now, these are recorded for us in Second Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to use this sort of as a launch pad into the rest of what we're going to look at today. Verse 1, these are the last words of David. <clears throat> the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Uh, here, King David is speaking of godly leadership, again, specifically in the context of a king ruling over a nation. Israel had many kings. Most of them, wicked men who ruled poorly and abused their positions of power, and that's been the tendency of humanity for all of time. When someone is elevated to a position of power, they often mistreat those under them and rule selfishly. But every once in a while, you get a good leader, and King David is one of those examples in the Old Testament. Someone who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. And God here says through King David in this chapter that such a ruler dawns on those over whom he has authority like the morning light, like the sun shining on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to grow. And so the principle that we learn here is that godly leaders seek to be a blessing to those under their authority. Again, many people in positions of power and authority mistreat those who are under them. They abuse their position in order to benefit themselves. In other words, they yield their power over people selfishly. But good leaders, godly leaders, are those who seek to benefit and bless those who are under them, not use them for their own benefit. And that key characteristic of uh, such leaders, the, the types of character traits that lead someone to be that kind of a leader, are outlined there in verse 3. They rule justly over men, And they rule in the fear of God. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into the principles of Proverbs, I want to look briefly at King Solomon's reign over Israel. Solomon, of course, wrote uh, the vast majority of the book of Proverbs. Solomon was David's son. And so after King David's death, Solomon became king over Israel. And shortly after he had become king, we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, At Gibeah the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. Uh, again, you know, we've talked about this before, but just imagine that scenario. God appears to you one night and just asks, says to you, ask what I shall give you. Just a, an open invitation, whatever you want, what do you want from me? You get this one shot. And Solomon says, verse 6, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in up, uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So here is Solomon's famous request for wisdom. And notice the motivation he had in asking for wisdom. It wasn't just wisdom in order to live a good life, in order to be successful for himself. He asked for wisdom that he might know how to lead Israel. He asked for wisdom so that he might be able to discern Between good and evil, and govern this large group of people well. That was the reason, the motivation behind his asking God for wisdom. And so, verse 10 says, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And no wonder it did, uh, because Solomon's request was completely unselfish. He wasn't asking, like many of us would, for riches or a long, healthy life or something for ourselves. He was concerned with those that he was tasked to lead. And so right at the start, he's beginning to be the kind of leader that King David spoke of, someone who seeks to bless those under his authority. And notice also that Solomon's request was for wisdom to discern between good and evil. And that's the second principle we can learn from these passages, that becoming a godly leader begins with a sincere desire to lead justly. Solomon didn't just want success as a king, uh, however you might measure that. He didn't just want his reign to increase and his uh, nation to conquer other nations. He didn't ask to become the most powerful king ever. No, Solomon wanted to rule justly, rightly. He wanted to know the right decisions to make. And so he asked God for wisdom so that he could discern between good and evil and lead these people well. And God was pleased with this request. And so verse 11, God says to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. As you keep reading in First uh, Kings, you see examples of Solomon's wisdom at work. Uh, here's one, uh, one famous example of this sort of thing. First uh, Kings chapter 3, verse 16, Then two prostitutes came to the king. And stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child when she was in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. So you got two women, gave birth to two children. We were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. This woman's son died in the night, because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me, while your servant slept. And she laid him at her breast, and he and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. And so this issue is brought to King Solomon, and basically he has to try and figure this out. This is, of course, before DNA tests or anything like that. So how would you know? I mean, how could you really tell? The king says, verse 23, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. The other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is a living one. The king said, bring me a sword. He does what nobody would have expected him to do. So a sword was brought before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now, we'll see here in a minute, he's not actually intending to kill the child, but in order to see the reactions of the two women and figure out who was the mother. Verse 26, the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall neither be mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death, she is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So this is just one example of the great wisdom of King Solomon. Wisdom that led him to lead justly, to make the right decisions for the good of the nation. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 4 says that during the reign of Solomon, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon over, uh, sorry, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tishsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So the reign of King Solomon was characterized by peace and prosperity for all the people of Israel and Judah, and even for the surrounding nations. He was able to establish a trade agreements between nations, and peace flourished. This became the height of Israel's wealth as a nation. We would say in today's uh, vernacular GDP was off the charts uh, it was during Solomon's reign that the magnificent temple in Jerusalem was built and verse 29 continues God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the people of Egypt he was wiser than all other men Wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite and Heman, Calcol, uh, Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of the be- also of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, and of fish. And all people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. One such person who came to hear the wisdom of Solomon was the queen of Sheba. Uh, She was a queen that was somewhat skeptical of Solomon. Uh, These passages make clear his fame was spreading as Israel was prospering and flourishing, and everybody was hearing about this wise king in Israel who was leading the nation so well. And she was a bit skeptical, and so she decided to come and investigate, kind of see what was going on, see what the Solomon guy was all about. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So she had a few few things that she thought might stump this supposedly wise man. Verse 2, She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue and with camels bearing spices Uh, Very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of the officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you. <clears throat> And sets you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. So, from all of these passages, then, we can learn from the life of Solomon that leading well, exercising authority in a wise and God honoring way, is a blessing to those under such leadership. And ultimately, that portrayal of wise leadership should be in the back of our minds as we're considering our own positions of authority over others. Do we use positions of authority to benefit ourselves, or do we seek to bless those that we lead? Good leaders are those who seek the good of those under their authority. They don't use and abuse them for their own selfish gain. And one of the best examples of this in the Old Testament is King Solomon. You notice there in verse 8 that the Queen of Sheba not only talks about the great wisdom that Solomon had, the prosperity of the nation, but she says, happy are your men, happy are your servants, the people that are benefiting from your great leadership. So Solomon had asked God for wisdom, primarily to help him lead the nation of Israel well, so he would know how to steward the authority that he had been given as king. And God granted his request to the max. He gave Solomon more wisdom than any who had ever lived. And then Solomon, as we uh, read in just one of those passages a minute ago, he wrote Proverbs so that this wisdom that he had could be passed down to future generations. And so now as we turn to the book of Proverbs, we're going to hear some of this wisdom on the subject of stewarding authority. What does it look like to lead people well? And as we go, we're going to highlight a few characteristics that describe wise leaders according to the book of Proverbs. The first characteristic is righteousness, or you could say justice. This is the most prevalent in the book of Proverbs. Justice is the foundation of good, godly leadership. Proverbs 16, verse 10. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. Obviously, it is important for those with authority over others to act righteously as their decisions affect everyone under them. They are to speak righteously. They are to act righteously. They are to establish their authority by righteousness. And that characteristic of righteousness or justice is the main quality that wise leaders must have. Proverbs 17 verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So what makes a just leader, according to this proverb, is one who punishes the wicked And who justifies the righteous. Both of those are needed for justice to be done. And this is why Solomon asked God for wisdom to discern between good and evil. Because in order to be a good leader, one must have a proper moral compass, meaning they must have an internalized set of values uh, that guides them in their behavior, their personal behavior, and in their decision making. And this is what is so lacking in so many of our leaders in America today. We have people in positions of authority with no moral compass. They call evil good. They call good evil. They justify the wicked and condemn the righteous. So lacking in basic justice, basic principles of righteousness, that they would even consider something as objectively barbaric as killing a child in the womb to be a positive good, a right that must be upheld at all costs. It's a sign of a lack of of basic moral compass in our leadership today. Proverbs 28, verse 4 says, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So a good leader, then, is one who seeks the Lord and tries to learn more of God in his ways. Notice that in verse 5. Those who seek the Lord are capable of understanding justice. That's how you properly develop your moral compass, by studying the only objective standard of right and wrong that we have access to, which is Scripture. As you grow in your knowledge of God and His Word to us, you will better understand what good and evil are. You'll be able to discern and thus be better equipped to act with righteousness. This is why it was always very important for the kings in Israel to study the law of God. You might think that you know, the Scripture would be really important for the priests, for the Bible teachers. They need to study Scripture thoroughly. But God made it a high priority for kings as well. Because only as you know God and His commands can you rightly lead and make decisions. Righteousness and justice comes from knowing God and His ways. And so to the kings of Israel, God said in Deuteronomy 17, when He sits on the throne of His kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So God is saying when someone becomes a king in Israel, they're supposed to write out for themselves a copy of the entire book of Deuteronomy. 34 chapters that were God's kind of summary of instructions for the nation of Israel. And each king was to write out a copy of the book for himself. Verse 19, it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. This is how you learn to lead with righteousness, by reading scripture and thus learning to fear the Lord and keep his commands. Proverbs 29 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And then verse 4 of the same chapter, "...by justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down." So the first quality needed in those who have authority over others is righteousness or justice. When such people are in power, the land is built up. It's a blessing on all who are under their authority. But when the wicked rule, everyone suffers as a result." Now, all of what follows in Proverbs really flows out of that primary characteristic of righteousness. Uh, There are more specific applications of that, but these will kind of overlap with it. Uh, The next characteristic highlighted in Proverbs for those in leadership is truthfulness. Proverbs 17, verse 7 says, "...fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince." It is unbecoming of someone in leadership, here speaking of a prince, to speak something that is false. And again, we've experienced this a lot uh, in America lately. Distrust in our government leaders is at an all-time high because they've been found to be lying about a whole host of issues. And this isn't just a Democrat issue. It isn't just a Republican issue. It's pretty much across the board. Uh, This was really apparent to me back in uh, 2020 during the presidential debates Uh, Trump would say something, Biden would say that he was lying, Biden would say something, Trump would say that he was lying, and then the fact-checkers would say that both of them were lying, and then later people would fact-check the fact-checkers and they found out they weren't even telling the whole truth. Uh, It's just a pervasive problem throughout our country, people in positions of power and authority whose words cannot be trusted. They twist facts to make themselves look good and their opponents look bad. They cover up any evidence of their personal corruption. You just can't trust what our governing authorities today say. And that's a real shame. It's a blight on us as a society that such people, frankly, keep getting elected after they've proven themselves to be dishonest. Honesty, truthfulness in leaders invites credibility. It causes those under their authority to trust them. Proverbs 29, verse 12, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. So truthfulness, justice, these are the foundation of wise, godly leadership. Next, good leadership is characterized by objectivity or fairness, meaning they don't show partiality towards some people. Here are a few Proverbs. There's many in the book of Proverbs about this issue of partiality and judgment. Proverbs 18, verse 5 says, It is not good to be partial to the wicked, or to deprive the righteous of justice. Uh, Over in chapter 24, we read, these also are sayings of the wise, partiality in judging is not good. Now, when we're talking about partiality, the Hebrew terms here are really helpful. The word partiality in the verse we just read is a translation of two words from the underlying Greek texts. One of those words is a verb, meaning to recognize or to pay attention to. The other is a noun, and it's the word for face. So you put the two together, it sort of forms a compound idea to recognize someone's face. Partiality in judging is when you pay attention to someone's face. So picture a courtroom where two people are bringing a dispute before a judge. Partiality would be a problem if one of the two people was known by the judge, if he recognized their face either because they were a friend or because they were an enemy. In either case, his prior knowledge and history with that person may taint how he judges over this issue. So being impartial, being objective and fair as a leader means not paying attention to faces. Uh, This is recognized in our personification of justice. I'm sure we've all seen this image before. Uh, You'll see this outside of courthouses often. Lady Justice, and you'll notice... She's wearing a blindfold, the idea being that she's not paying attention to who is brought before her. She hears the facts of the case, and she renders a just sentence, uh, irrespective of who is involved. In the ancient world, as it is today, this was often a problem when dealing with people of differing economic statuses. Uh, in today's judicial system, often, unfortunately, your wealth determines how good of a lawyer you can afford, which then determines the outcome of your trial. And so the rich end up getting away with things that the poor never would, and this has always been the case. In ancient times, it was a bit more obvious. The rich would often just pay a bribe to the judge and get away with their crimes that way. And so the poor would be taken advantage of. Proverbs instructs those in authority then to treat everyone fairly, Uh, without any regard for whether this is a rich and powerful person or a poor person who can't benefit you at all. Proverbs 29, verse 7 says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Proverbs 31, verse 8, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And then chapter 29, again, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Good leaders will stand up for those who are despised, those who are being mistreated. They won't treat some people differently than others. They will give justice to everyone, justice to those who cannot benefit them as well as to the rich and powerful. Wise leaders who fear the Lord seek to be objective and fair to all those under their authority, not playing favorites. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, these characteristics apply to other forms of leadership and authority as well. Proverbs, again, is most concerned with kings or government leaders. That's you know a king writing to his son who would be a king. Of course, we would expect that. But partiality is just as much of a problem in the workplace or in the family or anywhere where there's authority and people under authority. When there's favorites being played, when one person is... Treated differently than another because of your personal like or dislike of that person. Such partiality, Proverbs says, is evil. Next, wise, godly leaders are those who walk in integrity. We'll just look at one example of this. Proverbs 17, verse 23 The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. A good leader, then, is one who cannot be bought. Uh, This gets back to kind of where we began, that good leadership means you're committed to righteousness, to justice. If you have an opportunity to be in charge at any capacity, uh, whether we're talking about a government ruler, a supervisor at work, whatever, recognize that you have a responsibility before God to rule according to his principles of integrity. Don't take advantage of your position to benefit yourself in some dishonest way. Lastly, good leaders are characterized by love, love for those under their authority. Good leaders seek the benefit and flourishing of those who have been entrusted to them, whereas wicked rulers are oppressive and tyrannical. Proverbs 28, verse 15, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. But he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days. Contrast that wicked, oppressive ruler with the portrait given in chapter 20, which says steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. Wise and godly leaders have concern for those that they are called to lead. They are seeking their benefit rather than using them and abusing them for their own benefit. Now, having looked at all of these principles, for those in authority, perhaps at this point you're feeling like, uh, none of this sermon really applies to me. Maybe you're not a parent, you don't have kids, maybe you're not a manager or supervisor at work, you're probably not a king, and so you might be thinking, this doesn't really have anything to do with me. Well, regardless of whether or not you exercise authority over others, these principles should at least direct us. In our considerations when choosing leaders, again, as American citizens, we have this great uh, responsibility, really, to elect our leaders. Next year, we're going to have this opportunity uh, to vote for federal, state, local leadership uh, during the election. And I think it would be a good starting place for us to ask ourselves, who would best exemplify the principles of Proverbs about wise leadership? This should be in the back of our minds as we're thinking about uh, who to appoint to a position of power in our country again whether we're talking about local leadership or federal who would administer justice who has a track record of truthfulness and integrity who is objective and fair in their treatment of people who displays love and concern for those under their authority rather than being tyrannical or oppressive these sort of baseline principles should guide should guide christians in choosing our leaders because we know that when people like this are in authority, it is a blessing to the people. It's like the sunrise in the morning, like rain on the grass. It's life-giving when such people are elevated to positions of authority. Uh, Here's a good kind of summary for the kinds of leaders we ought to look for. Uh, Exodus 18, verse 21, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people. Uh, You'll notice one foundational concept in so many of the passages we've looked at today is fearing God. Wisdom in leadership, as with all true wisdom, begins with fearing the Lord. King David said in the passage we started with that those who rule justly over men in the fear of God are a blessing to the people. And here again, Moses in Exodus 18 is being instructed to select. God-fearing men to help him lead Israel. Only when you see yourself under God's authority can you be a good authority to those under you. This is the beginning of wisdom. Being most concerned with what God thinks about how I'm leading. Now, that will help me not to be partial towards some. That will help me not to lack integrity The fear of the Lord will guide me to resist the urge to do whatever is popular with the people, regardless of whether it's right. Fearing the Lord is the starting place for good, wise leadership. Here are Paul's instructions to servants in Ephesians chapter 6 and their relationships with their masters that they work for. He writes to them, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, and not to man. Remember, we talked about this concept uh, last Sunday that we submit to our earthly masters ultimately out of submission to God. But then look at what Paul goes on to say to the masters, verse nine: "Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening." knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Paul reminds these men who were in positions of power and authority over others that as Christians, they have a master too. And they will answer to God for how they handled their authority, how they treated those who worked for them. And so Paul is trying to motivate these men to fear the Lord. To let that be the driving uh, motivation for how you lead and exercise authority over people. Uh, Similarly, Paul says in Colossians 4 Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Ultimately, all of our human authority figures will fail at some points. Uh, Even in the Old Testament, the best leaders of Israel, you think of King David. His actions with Bathsheba became a blot on his life. Solomon, though in many ways a wise king, uh, nonetheless, in some areas of his life, was famously flawed. Moses was a great leader, and yet we see him at times acting foolishly, disobeying God. No human being will ever be a perfectly wise and just ruler except for Christ. Only Jesus can ultimately rule us in perfect justice and righteousness. And as Christians, we look forward to the day when all of the world is submitted to Christ, when he returns to take his seat on the throne, and then we will experience a life under a perfect authority. As Isaiah wrote in chapter 9 of his prophecy, "...for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justiceness and uh, sorry with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Verse six of that prophecy describes who Jesus would be, a child that is born. He is the mighty God, born as a human. And then verse seven describes what the kingdom of Christ would look like, that he is. Reigning now over all who would submit to his lordship. And Isaiah tells us that his government, the reign of Christ, his kingdom, will increase without end. It will overspread the world. And as it does, peace will increase with it. Of the increase of his rule and of peace, there will be no end. Because Christ will rule with perfect justice and righteousness. The more people are submitting to him across the world, the more justice and righteousness will be done. And one day we believe that his kingdom will fully come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to that end we pray and we long for the day when all the world is ruled by Christ. Let's pray together.